Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Morris was ushering in the new Jerusalem. It's barely the new Canvey Island, is it really, what we've ended up with? I was really amazed that only 100 years ago, Britain was the sole global superpower. He is now polling, in terms of public approval ratings, lower than Boris Johnson at the depths of his despair. Too many Tory MPs don't want what Conservative voters want. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Four years ago this week, the Conservative Party was full of hope. Ooh, Jeremy Corbyn had been soundly thrashed, with Boris Johnson's Tories winning an almighty 368 seats and a Commons majority of 80 at the general election on the 12th of December 2019. After more than three years of ghastly parliamentary wrangling, Brexit was finally going to be delivered, with Johnson bringing in lower taxes and proper border controls too. A brave new start for Britain. There was talk of a modern-day New Jerusalem, the can-do attitude of renewal that followed the Second World War. But four years on, with lockdown having wrecked the economy while hammering education and the nation's mental health, we've got taxation at a 70-year high. This Tory government has watched, as Whitehall, the public sector more broadly in our wider national debate has become embroiled in endless thickets of wokery, gender politics and culture wars. And now, three prime ministers on co-pilot, the Tory tribes are at war over immigration, and in particular the government's plans to deport illegal migrants to Rwanda. The One Nation crowd up against the European Research Group, the New Conservatives and Liz Truss acolytes facing the Common Sense Group. The government's Rwanda legislation survived second reading in the Commons earlier this week, buying Downing Street time, but by no means resolution. It's been a busy week for Rishi Sunak. Along with the immigration psychodrama, he's faced the COVID inquiry and also found time for a blink-and-you've-missed-it flying visit to Dubai for the COP28 climate summit. But let's start with the party politics, Alison. We said last week this Rwanda row could be the beginning of the end of Rishi Sunak's premiership. Were we wrong? Crystal balls, Halligan. Crystal oh. balls. But we should say that we were very hopeful. Or just balls. <laughs> or just balls, absolutely. <laughs> I quite fancy when the journalism career ends. I quite fancy being, you know, Madame Petalengro at the end of the pier in Hastings. I think I'd be good, don't you? That's the way to do it. Punch and Judy, maybe. <laughs> Actually, we could do that. We could end up in a Punch and Judy stall, you and me. I'd be the crocodile. There's always the sort of crocodile that came <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's so bittersweet, isn't it, thinking about that election victory, how elated so many of us were when Corbyn was defeated. It just made me smile, you saying that Boris was ushering in the new Jerusalem. It's barely the new Canvey Island, is it, really, what we've ended up with? Oh, my God. 
Yeah, and also, just for the benefit of Planet Normal listeners, that was the inception of Planet Normal, wasn't it? Because after that election with Brexit going through, no more meaningful votes. Although this week has been, hasn't it, Liam? It's been real shades of that sort of argy-bargy in the Commons. Even Marc Francois has popped up giving his ape and worth to everything. But we were genuinely positive, optimistic, had a Conservative government with a really good majority. And I don't know, where are we now? Too many Tory MPs don't want what Conservative voters want. That's what all of this is about, really. I mean, you can talk about the wrangling over the detail of the Rwanda bill, but fundamentally what it's about is that the Conservative Party is irrevocably split. And as you say, people have started talking this week rather amusingly about the five families, as in the godfather, you know, with Don Francoise and Don Miriam Cates and all that. And it is basically on the right, although I don't think they're on the right particularly. I just think the Conservative Party has swung so violently to the left in the last year or so that these people are just what you and I would call common or garden conservatives. So we've got the ERG, the new Conservatives, that's Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger. I'm very big fans of them. The Common Sense Group, the Northern Research Group, and Liz Truss's Growth Group, all forming a flank on the right, really pushing against the Rwanda bill, which they don't think is going to stand any kind of exposure to reality at all. I agree with that. And of course, we've got the One Nation Tories or the Liberal Democrats, as we might also call them. So the Prime Minister, poor Rishi Sunak, each trouser leg being pulled by the varying forces, he has this week survived that vote, which could have turned into a sort of almost vote of no confidence in him. There were 313 for 269 against a no Tory MP voted against the bill, although 29 abstained. But this is very much not a victory, Liam, is it really? It's more a postponement of what's going to come when the bill comes back to the Commons in January. Indeed. Let's be clear about this. There is a lot of support across the UK for lower immigration, particularly in light of the latest numbers, which of course are at record highs. Immigration places second on 41% with health behind the economy on 54% in terms of what is your top priority. That's recent polling by YouGov. Yet polling shows that less than 5% of Brits think this Rwanda plan is actually going to do anything to reduce immigration. And that's why There's so much bitterness towards it because you've got a lot of people on the left of politics who say, why are we worried about this issue at all? Immigration is always and everywhere positive. You've got other people saying there's too much focus on immigration. We understand that it is an issue for lots of people, but the Rwanda plan is mad and too extreme. And then you've got others who just think it won't work and something tougher is needed. And Rishi Sunak has very much made this a hill he's going to die on. One of his five pledges, as well as halving inflation and getting growth going and cutting debt and so on, was, quotes, stop the boats. And that's why he has to do something about this. And parts of his parliamentary party is absolutely adamant that the UK should leave the European Convention on Human Rights, of course, which British lawyers drew up in the aftermath of the Second World War to stop atrocities above all the Holocaust and so on. But there are other conservatives, the One Nation group in particular, 
who absolutely abhor the idea of Europe leaving the ECHR because the European countries who aren't in the European Convention of Human Rights are Russia and Belarus. The government, in the form of the new Home Secretary, James Cleverley, is saying, yes, but those rules were drawn up in the aftermath of the Second World War. They need to be modified and so on. But I don't even think even the current Home Secretary, unlike the outgoing Home Secretary, Suella Braveman, has got the stomach to leave the ECHR. So maybe they're trying to land with legislation that includes what we call a notwithstanding pledge. So it kind of gets around the fact that we're in the ECHR in that particular instance. But look, the whole thing is a mess. Rishi Sunak, he was the bright new thing. He was the shiny new pin. There are now lots of people on the Conservative backbenches who are openly talking unbelievably about another leadership election (laughs) before the next general election. We've been raising that possibility on Planet Normal. We have. The soundings we're taking for weeks. But that idea has now burst into the mainstream. I was at a drinks thing earlier this week with lots of people from politics, lots of leading conservatives were there. And MPs are saying openly, but within closed circles, that they've submitted letters to Graham Brady now with the intention of trying to trigger a new leadership election for Rishi Sunak. Astonishing. He is now polling in terms of public approval ratings lower than Boris Johnson at the depths of his despair. Yeah, that's right, Liam. There's so many moving parts, aren't there? So Nigel Farage, just back from the celebrity jungle where he managed to come third, doing no harm to his popularity at all. And he comes out like a lip-smacking crocodile saying that the Tories (laughs) are in dire dire trouble is absolutely right because Sunak's popularity is uh, now 70% have an unfavourable opinion of the Prime Minister. Should we go for Velma stat of the week? (laughs) (laughs) Only do it now just to get that noise. So there have been 62 consecutive polls and since the Tories even recorded a rating of 30%, and that was in mid-October. And since then, there have been 60 ratings in the polls in the 20% range and two of 19%. Now, Liam, this is the worst extended run of polls in the Conservative Party history. I like the way you slow down there to really emphasise the point. (laughs) No, I mean, it is extraordinary, really. I mean, I've given up on them and I I don't grieve for them at all now because I think they've got it coming. But it is pretty sobering. And also you've got this absolutely incredible stat with about 84% of of Britons thinking the Conservatives are doing badly on immigration, which was their trump card, always been their one of their great strengths. And if you think that the public now trusts Labour more on immigration than the Conservative Party. Let's remind ourselves, Liam, Labour led by Keir Starmer, who once said that there was a racist undercurrent which permeates all immigration law. So the man who is going to become the Prime Minister of the country next year, unless some sort of asteroid comes and takes out Tower (laughs) Hamlets, which that may be the only thing, Keir Starmer thinks immigration law is racist. So that's where we are. And there's a huge gulf between the ruling class and the country. And I think that opens up a huge amount of opportunity for the other parties, reform, SDP, reclaim, the smaller parties 
offering now a different vision of this. Now, somebody I thought was very interesting this week, which I'm hoping to get onto the podcast, Robert Jenrick resigned as the immigration minister, despite having been a close mate of Sunak's. And Jenrick gave a very good, I mean, Jenrick allegedly was sent into the Home Office to keep an eye on Suella Braverman and her excesses, but he's, I'm not sure if you could say going over to the dark side, but he's certainly switched sides. And Jenrick is now speaking truth unto power, which is a rather thrilling sight, really. Maybe he switched sides or maybe Sunak just lacked political judgment in appointing him. This guy does not have much political experience. No, he doesn't. But it's interesting that someone who has been in that core in a circle is now starting to say some really jaw-dropping things. So Robert Jenrick said he thought a political decision choice had been made to bring forward this Rwandan bill, which doesn't do the job. He said that in its current form, it would still allow a range of legal claims which will bog down the scheme. And he says it's very clear to all those people who actually understand how the system operates that this won't succeed because people who are under threat of deportation will still be able to appeal on the grounds that Rwanda, even if the British government has said is safe, is not individually safe for them. So I think what we're looking at really is the fact that once again, the human rights lawyers will be saying, you know, but Mr. Ahmed's got bad wisdom teeth or something or, you know, whatever. So that's just going to kind of derail it yet again. And I think the government is hoping for at least some symbolic people on flights to Rwanda before the general election. Let's not be too cynical, but that's what's happening. I did enjoy your description of Nigel Farage as a crocodile. Indeed, if I was a national newspaper cartoonist, there's still time, I would depict Nigel Farage not just as any crocodile, but as TikTok crocodile from (laughs) Peter Pan, the crocodile that swallowed the clock as well as (laughs) Captain Cook's hands, because he really is saying to the Tory party, there's an election coming, TikTok, TikTok, and I'm going to come and eat your lunch in the form of the Reform Party. And it's worth saying also, you described Keir Starmer as our next prime minister, and that is, I wouldn't say it's nailed on, but it's certainly on a balance of probabilities. That's what's the most likely thing to happen, whether or not the Tories will go lower than the 164 seats down from 350 now. They won 164 in 1997 during the Blair landslide. You're right, on current polling, they're going to go way below that. But what a contrast that is, the UK electorate going for a centre-left party, when across Europe, you know, look at national populists in various EU countries. In the Netherlands, they've had the best ever result. In Sweden, in Finland, in Italy, in France... There's now open talk that Marine Le Pen could win in Belgium, in Portugal, in many of these countries, national populist, ostensibly strong against immigration parties are polling or winning. And yet here in the UK, because everyone's so naffed off, technical term, with the Tories, the UK, it looks, is going to go towards the centre Left. Liam, we are at the centre left. You know, it's not a change. Or even further then, even further. We're just going in a different direction, whatever our starting point. We are, but that's because the Conservative government is not Conservative. So people want to change. If there was an actual proper Conservative Party functioning, which there absolutely isn't, we wouldn't be in this situation. I did think it was really interesting, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, that in France, Emmanuel Macron is suffering very similar difficulties to Sunak. You just think you used to fancy him. He used used to be your little bow, didn't he? Your little pocket rocket. Yeah. (laughs) Any man who with nice socks, your heart just melts. (laughs) 
anyway, now I've moved on. I've moved on. I don't, I don't know who's the latest crush. Robert Jenrick's the new crush. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I've got to call the diary columns on that one standard. <laughs> but listen, this is interesting. This piece by Gavin Mortimer, The Spectator. So Macron has refused this week to accept the resignation of his interior minister after the government's immigration bill was thrown out of Parliament. Now, this was seen as a crushing humiliation. And what's, again, Liam, very, very good comparison with us. In the eyes of the French left, the bill is racist and xenophobic. They objected to the proposals to cut welfare benefits and expel more illegal migrants, while on the right, Marine Le Pen's national rally, as you mentioned, and the centre-right Republicans considered it too liberal, specifically the clause that will regularise the status of illegal immigrants working in some job sectors. But this is a fascinating point, is that Macron, like Sunak, is at heart in favour of free movement. And I think what we're seeing now all across Europe is basically these globalists who have got themselves into power, who are more interested in, with an eye on the sinecures they're going to be occupying after they're out of power. And one phrase that you and I were very struck by from Robert Jenrick, the new crush, was when he was talking about on the Koonsberg program, and he said, politicians shouldn't care about our reputation on the gilded international circuit. Now, I am fed up of my government, of British politicians saying, oh, we can't do that because what would happen to our international reputation? I mean, it's basically sod the safety of the British people, sod the terrorist threat of thousands of undocumented young male migrants coming in. And I am fed up of them governing with their own self-interest, their own eye on international kudos from their friends at the, you know, the COP28 and all these summits. They can say, jolly good, we're nice chaps. It's not nice. It's not good for the British people. And I think this is all across Europe now. We're even seeing it, Liam, aren't we, in the States with Biden being held to ransom by the Republicans until he sorts out the huge numbers coming over the Mexican border. I often think that discussions here in the UK about the EU don't actually ever refer to what's happening in the EU. No, they and don't. I say that with some regret. You know, so many of the newspapers across Europe, you, know, you don't even have to speak or read French, German or Italian. It's all available in translation. But we mustn't forget that in 2015, EU governments gave Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, Austria, they all had a derogation from Schengen for two years. So they could close their borders even within the European Union. And then those countries and others have added to them have been you know, extending that derogation six months at a time. And whatever you think about leaving the ECHR, and of course it horrifies lots of civil servants and commentators, this is now an active discussion, whatever your view, across other EU countries. And so I don't think Britain's an outlier. Actually, it is interesting, as I say, that we're looking to shift to the centre-left while many other EU countries are shifting politically in terms of electoral outcomes and polling away from the centre and towards the right. But none of this will be any consolation for Rishi Sunak, who I think is really coming up against, possibly for the first time in his life, very, very serious difficulties, issues that he faces that he can't get his arms around, genuinely Gordian knots that he's trying to untie. And he must now be thinking, is this the end of my premiership? Is he going to lead the Tories into the next general election? 
Just last week, I wrote in the Telegraph that if he can hang on, Sunak may want to go for a longer game, pushing an election till the end of 2024, maybe even early 2025. If interest rates keep coming down, if inflation keeps coming down, if you get some kind of economic feel-good factor, the Tories will want to hang around for that. And yet, that may now not happen, not least because he could be turfed out by his own MPs. But also, Alison, we should bring into the conversation, because just today, Wednesday, when we're recording Planet Normal, some really bad GDP numbers showing that the economy contracted by 0.3%. And the idea that the UK could go into recession is now back on the table. And why is that? It's because we raised interest rates 14 times in a row. And as the Bank of England's economists said, and I do think they were on the money on this, unusually for me, I'm praising them and they're forecasting. But the Bank of England's economists said that a lot of the tightening implications of those 14 rate rises have yet to come through, have yet to be expressed. Monetary policy, that's changing interest rates and the quantity of money in the economy, work, as Milton Friedman said, with long and variable lags. And we've got lots and lots of monetary tightening still in the tank to come as those higher interest rates squeeze credit, squeeze borrowing, squeeze lending as companies get rid of debt and households don't take on debt. A lot of that tightening is still to come. And it may be, Alison, rather than the cost of living crisis easing, rather than the sunlit uplands of economic progress beckoning in 2024, it may be, and I say this with huge regret, it may be the economy gets quite a bit worse, even if interest rates stay the same, before it gets better. But why, Liam, why would, for argument's sake, a Kemi or a Suella, why would they want to throw their hat into the ring now? Because all they're going to inherit really is a mountain of pain, a party so fractured it makes the Montagues and Capulets look like best friends, doesn't it? And I personally think that immigration next year, the immigration figures will probably be almost as bad as they were this year, very unlikely to solve the small boat. So I don't know that I'd be interested to see your thinking about that. I should just say before you answer that, Sunak did well at the COVID inquiry this week. He said sorry, but not just to the COVID bereaved. He made a point of saying that he was sorry for all the people who'd suffered under the restrictions. And that was, I thought, very well done. And he said really quite powerful things. He said that scientists hadn't always given ministers the correct data. SAGE was less unanimous in its decisions than they had been led to believe. He defended Eat Out to Help Out because he said that it was vital to save hospitality jobs, not least because people who work in hospitality are among the poorest people in the country, including women and ethnic minorities. And there was an amazing exchange. Well, in fact, there were a couple of incredible exchanges. We haven't had much like this on this show. Let's just tell Planet Normal listeners that Rishi Sunak at the COVID inquiry used my favourite word, which is... No succumial. Yes. He said <laughs> that they had not been given accurate hospital data. Well, who knew that apart from you and me? No succumial, definition of a disease originating in a hospital. The things we learnt during lockdown are the things we learned. <laughs> And qualies, we learned about qualies, didn't we? Sunak said we actually should talk about the qualies, which I'm sure listeners will know that this is the means by which the NHS assesses 
all treatments and medicines, whether someone with cystic fibrosis can have a medicine that costs 30 grand a year. It's actually operated, you know, in a quite restrictive and sometimes punitive way. And Hugo Keith KC said grandly. <laughs> you can't say his name without. <laughs> I think if you've been called Keith Hugo, we'd have an entirely different human, don't you? I think I'm going to st- let's start calling him Keith. Now you're sounding like Rowan Atkinson when he interviewed <laughs> Elton John, but shouldn't you be called John Elton? <laughs> Did you sort of get it wrong or something? <laughs> well, we're going to start calling him Keith Hugo. But anyway, so Keith Hugo announced loftily to the Prime Minister, he said, we're not talking about quality life assurances. It's a quality adjusted life year. And, you know, NHS managers, and I wouldn't wish this on anyone, they have to sometimes decide yeah. where they put scarce resources, who are they going to operate on, what's going to produce the most quality adjusted mm. life years, bang for your buck. It's a very, very common principle of medicine that most journalists now would know what it means. The COVID inquiry should be looking at how much money... Sorry, are you still doing Hugo Keith, Keith Hugo Keith, impression? I yes. can't quite tell. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to go and take over. Essentially, what is the COVID inquiry looking at if it isn't looking at the vast millions that were spent for each life saved, oh. many of them, no disrespect to our elderly population, because we, you and I both have l- beloved elderly parents. But if they spent, you know, we printed 400 billion quid, that's exactly what the COVID inquiry should be talking about. Was it worth spending the money? And later in that exchange, Rishi Sunak said that taxes had had to go up because of the lockdown and because of all the associated costs and the lack of receipts coming in, etc. And Keith, Hugo, said, oh, let's not talk about taxes. But anyway, it was interesting to see the best of the Prime Minister, very, very calm, mastering his ring binder with aplomb, a quietly impressive figure who, by the way, refused to jump in the pylon on Boris, said that things had gone pretty well, really. So a much more impressive figure. Have we got time for a quick mention of the COP28 boondangle, which happened this week? (laughs) Gabfest, come on. Yeah, I was following it quite closely. People will remember that we had Professor Michael Kelly last week talking about net zero. So I was watching the COP proceedings with interest. A very distinguished professor from somewhere called Cambridge University. Is is there a university in Cambridge? Well, yeah, some of us think it's one of the best universities in the world. But anyway, (laughs) they really were struggling to get an agreement that was strong enough for all the participants. I think it's about 198 countries that need to agree. And it did end with a call for the world to transition away from fossil fuels. But what I thought was interesting was a lot more speaking out from the oil producing countries. And they were said to have blocked a more ambitious target. Now, I think the fault lines, Liam, here are really genuinely interesting because we saw these so-called petrostates starting to call out the sort of hair shirt, sort of knit your own conscience brigade in the West. And I thought that this guy, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, he's Saudi Arabia's energy minister, and he caused a real fuss when he refused to agree to a phase down, phase eight of oil. He really let the cat out of the bag, Liam, because he said, 
I assure you not a single person, I'm talking about governments, believes in that. I would like to put that challenge to all of those who come out publicly saying we have to phase down oil. I'll give you their name and number. Call them and ask them how they're going to do that. If they believe that this is the highest moral ground issue, fantastic. Let them do that themselves and we'll see how much they can deliver. So to me, that's very, very interesting now. That is calling the bluff of that particular class. The Western governments are fully signed up to this, in my mind, ruinous net zero project. And the oil state guys are saying, let's see how long you manage without oil. I do think it was an interesting summit, Alison. Of course, lots of people in the environmental lobby will be disappointed by it, but the language was actually firmer on net zero than the previous year. So in the eyes of the Green Lobby, quotes, progress is being made. But what I think is really happening here, we all want a much cleaner planet. And wherever you are on this net zero debate, what's happening, and I think it absolutely needs to happen, is that we're now getting more down to brass tacks, not just about you either want this to happen or you don't. You're either a good person or you're a bad person. You either think Greta Thunberg is fantastic or you think she's some kind of doom goblin. Mm. What's really happening here is we are starting to understand the practicalities of doing this. And I thought Michael Kelly's interview last week, and if you haven't listened to it, Planet Normal listeners, pin back your ears because you learn so much from such an impeccable expert source as one of the leading engineers in the world who is brave enough and courageous enough because it's tough to speak out about this. But wherever you stand on this debate, achieving net zero or even attempting to achieve net zero is going to impose massive, massive costs on ordinary people, how they heat their homes, how they get to work, how we keep the economy moving, how we keep progressing as a human race economically and in terms of battling poverty and driving up living standards and science and so on and enlightenment, it's going to be really, really tough. And we have to, and we're starting now to discuss how much that will cost and who pays and when. This is politics. And that is what politics is about. Not just saying you have to sign up to this or you're a monster. The debate up until now has been almost infantile. It's now becoming realistic and practical And environmentalists should be aware that that realism and that practicality is actually a necessary ingredient of getting this done. Logically, as journalists, we have to go to the place of bombing to see what happened, to interview people. But honestly, it is very risky. Hello, I'm David Knowles, host of Battle Lines, an original Telegraph podcast. Join me and our foreign correspondents on the ground for the latest analysis on the Israel-Hamas war. We're in a new phase of fighting now in Gaza. Before, the Israeli military was targeting the north. Then they were moving south. Now it's everywhere. Listen to Battle Lines every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now a change of pace, a bit of light and shade amidst all the crazy pre-Christmas politics. Because today's Planet Normal Stairway is Matthew Parker, who in recent years has emerged as one of the UK's leading historians. Parker's work has covered topics including the Battle of Britain, the sugar plantations of the Caribbean and the construction of the Panama Canal, a project that financially crippled Scotland and France in the 18th and 19th centuries respectively, before being completed by the US early in the 20th century. 
Born in El Salvador to British parents, Parker spent parts of his childhood in Norway and Barbados, as well as the UK. And one of his books is called Goldeneye, focusing on the house in Jamaica, where Ian Fleming wrote his James Bond novels and the jaw-dropping antics of the real-life characters who passed through. Parker's new book, One Fine Day, Britain's Empire on the Brink, uses a vast array of primary sources to describe what was happening across the British Empire on a particular day in 1923, when the empire was at its zenith, its biggest in terms of area covered. It's an astonishing approach to writing history. And here is my chat with historian Matthew Parker. One fine day, of course, that day was the 29th of September, 1923, the moment when the British Empire was at its geographic peak in terms of area covered. Just try and tell us how powerful the empire was at that moment. I was really amazed that only 100 years ago, Britain was the sole global superpower with a population 460 million people a fifth of the world's population, which was actually more than the populations of the United States, Russia and the French Empire combined, covering a quarter of the world's landmass. So very much the largest empire in world history. And this is only 100 years ago. So yeah, astonishing that this small island off the coast of Europe was this world power on a scale never seen before or since. You're an accomplished historian, if I may say so. You've written my favourite of your books, if I may say so, Panama Fever, about the building of the Panama Canal uh, at the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. What did you learn about the British Empire when you researched this book that surprised you, Matthew? It's the sort of the extraordinary power. I mean, within this huge geographical space, you've got immense riches. You've got something like a quarter of the world's wheat production, half its rice, wool, chrome, tin, 60% of its rubber, 70% of its gold. So this is an enormously wealthy, in theory, sort of polity. I love the fact that it's a sort of zenith. So it's the top of a spike. And no one, of course, knows that there's going to be this sort of extremely rapid movement in the other direction. And in fact, at the time, and I very much wanted to get the contemporary view of things rather than impose hindsight on it. And at the time, there's actually a lot of optimism. The previous years had seen problems in Ireland, in Iraq, in Egypt, in India. All of these had sort of gone away or been suppressed. And there's huge optimism about a new kind of empire, a consensual empire, increasingly being now being called the British Commonwealth, where nations could come together. And people were talking about this as a a foundation of world government run from London, as well as this power and this wealth. There's also this idealistic strand. And of course, no one knows that it's all about to go south. Tell us a little bit about your methodological approach, your angle of attack. In 2013, Bill Bryson wrote One Summer, America 1927, a book that focused on events at that particular moment in the US as it was emerging to overtake the UK to become the world's superpower. You've got a similar moment in time approach. You focused on one day in a huge geographic area. And what I really enjoyed about the book was your emphasis of primary sources, newspapers, correspondence and so on. Give us readers a taste of two, three or four of the particular episodes that you focus on in the book. I wanted to do something slightly different. I think some writers are guilty of 
coming to a subject with their minds pretty much made up and then looking for evidence to support that particular view. I want to sort of turn that upside down. So before I wrote a single word, I spent literally years going through official documents. So there's hundreds and hundreds of newspapers being published across the world and also magazines. And I read everything from um, Negro World to a magazine which I found called English Race was published on this day, which is obviously very different. And I sort of assembled all this material in a sort of huge pile and then sort of went through it and let those discoveries shape the theme and the, the movement of the book. So, for instance, I was looking at the, a newspaper of, actually, it's the day after, it was The Observer, which obviously wasn't published on the Saturday, it was published on the Sunday. And there's this little headline saying, Dying Races. And this is a report from a scientific conference that's being held in Australia that is addressing this catastrophic issue of depopulation in the Pacific Islands, largely due to the activities of Europeans in the region over the previous sort of 30 or 40 years. The Foreign Office as well, there's an angry telegram that was sent at, I think, 11.12 on the 29th September 1923 to the governor of Kenya, complaining that they had, the, the colonial office had received complaints from humanitarian groups in London about the verdict of a trial of a man who had confessed to beating one of his Kenyan workers to death and only received a two-year jail sentence from the all-white jury in Kenya. And the colonial office was absolutely furious. And this led me to the whole amazing, fascinating story of, of Kenya and what the white settlers, led by the notorious Lord Delamere, which some of your listeners may remember from sort of white mischief and, and all, all of those stories, what they had done to that colony in terms of forced labour and forced land grabs. So that's just a, a few stories that came directly from those primary source materials from the actual day. Tell us why it was that September the 29th, 1923, what happened geographically to push the British Empire to its geographic maximum? And then why was that the peak? What happened soon after? I think it was to do with the Palestine mandate, right? That's right. Obviously, the British had been in Palestine fighting during the war. But the 29th of September was the day where the mandate became law. So there'd been delays, there'd been arguments with the French over the border with Syria. So this was the actual day where the Palestine mandate became part of the empire. So this was the moment where you could actually walk from Cape Town in South Africa, all the way to Rangoon in Burma without leaving British-controlled territory. So this was the sort of cornerstone of this geopolitical sort of arch. You can see, even on this day of imperial zenith, there are a lot of issues that are pointing towards a, a more uncertain future. And a lot of this is because of the First World War, which obviously cost a very great deal of money. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realise that Britain sort of basically bankrolled the whole Allied effort up until 1917. You know, they gave huge loans to the Russians. They were never going to get that back, but also to the French and Italians. And they hoped when the Americans would join the war that they would take on some of this responsibility. But in fact, the Americans would only loan to the creditworthy British. This has causes massive eruptions in the whole um, international financial system on which British prosperity and London as the biggest city in the world and obviously the financial capital of the world. 
The other problem was, of course, the European export market, which had always, really almost always been more important to British industry and production than the empire was had disappeared. There was hyperinflation, there were endless civil wars, militias in the streets, including, of course, Adolf Hitler's Nazis, who were about to stage their putsch. So the market had disappeared and this is the moment of extreme mark devaluation. So the mark is in freefall, which means imports are much cheaper. So British industry is, is in, there's 2 million unemployed. And there's lots of other reasons why the war really sort of cracked the foundations of the empire. It was fought in theory for democracy against autocracy. And Wilson then turns up at Versailles and talks about self-determination. And this spreads around the empire. Woodrow Wilson for the US. The, the, the United States President Woodrow Wilson, yes. He was not arch-imperialist. He didn't mean the French and British empires. But the in India and in Burma and in Africa and in the Caribbean, there's a reaction against a process that previously had really sort of run the empire, which is, as you said, this idea of white prestige. There's a lovely quote by Norman Manley, who at this point, he'd, he'd actually fought in the British Army during the war and his brother... Norman Manley, the first Prime Minister of Jamaica in 1959, before Jamaican independence, right? That was the early 60s. Yes, it was, uh, Jamaican independence was in, in 62. He said, and he, he was talking about Jamaica, but, he, but he'd heard this British official, colonial official, say British rule and relies on a carefully nurtured sense of inferiority in the governed. For Manly, this makes Jamaicans turgid and lethargic. And John Wellhead Nehru, who I also story I tell in the book, he says the same thing about Indians. He said, more than the triumph of the military or diplomacy, there was a psychological triumph of the British in India. They'd convinced Indians that they were second rate. This was the justification for the empire, white superiority. But this is being challenged as never before. The likes of Marcus Garvey, who is talking about black pride. You have pan-African movements, you have pan-Asian movements, and you have um, people trying to reclaim their dignity that has really been taken from them by being put in this subservient position. You know, in, in West Africa, they're wearing traditional African dress rather than dressing as a European. Um, they're starting literary societies. They're running their own churches and schools. I mean, the schools story, I mean, education is, of course, one of the proudest boasts of people at, at the time who were promoting, they would say, education, medicine, development, peace, all of these are benefits of the empire. I sort of unpack all of these in the course of the book. There are complaints at this time all across the empire about the nature of the education. If you're in the West Indies, you're taught the height of the Chilsons, and you're taught the kings and the queens of Britain. And there's a lovely story from this woman, one of the few women who have any sort of agency in the empire at this time, called Sylvia Leith Ross. She's an education inspector in Nigeria. And she tells the story of going into a classroom in a quite an isolated part of Yoruba land in southern Nigeria and seeing sort of 40 or so entirely baffled little black kids looking at a, a, a blackboard with the words Ella of Aquitaine on them. <laughs> And Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> so anyway, it's 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 kind of funny, but you can see that why there's an Indian journalist who I quote is in a newspaper from this day. He says we're just being taught to that everything British is superior to everything Indian. Nationalists are saying the same thing in West Africa. We are being taught that Africans and black people are inferior to British and white people. This is humiliating and it's demotivating and we want to change this. And this is what now people are beginning to do. It is fashionable, isn't it, Matthew, to be hypercritical of empire. I must say, though, that 
throughout the book, I found your take to be a lot more thoughtful, a lot more nuanced. You do write extensively about the schools, the hospitals, the medicine, as well as the plunder, the injustice. I mean, I've written about the slave trade in the Sugar Barons. There's little sort of moral nuance there. But but this is a moment where the empire is sort of projecting itself and seeing itself as a liberal force. There's this idea of trusteeship, that the colonial power has a responsibility to develop and to move the subject people towards self-rule. And there are some very well-meaning people in the book. I found it refreshing, I must say, given there is so much criticism of the empire, that you gave in your book, as well as talking about the plunder and injustice, you gave a sense that a lot of the officials involved, a lot of the people who were implementing colonial policy thought they were doing God's work. They were on a kind of moral mission to improve humanity, at least in their own minds. Yes, and there's this idea of trusteeship, of a responsibility. And this is quite a new development. It's a sort of post-war thing. The empire has a responsibility for the well-being of all of the people who are in its care, if you like. And if that sounds patronising, it's because it really was patronising. And there were huge efforts were made, for instance, in the Pacific to deal with the terrible child mortality figures. But often, even the most well-meaning projects could backfire. There's an example in the book of Western Samoa, which was actually run as a mandate of New Zealand, who was the sort of cadet imperialists. And the governor there, who always referred to Samoans as children, a childlike race, but he implemented these measures and they were incredibly sort of bossy and intrusive. Things like he banned alcohol, he he got people to move a tree that was in the wrong place. There was all sorts of rules about how you kept your pigs and your chickens. And they worked. They worked. The infant mortality rate improved immeasurably. But at the same time, Western Samoa was the only place in the Pacific at this time with an active anti-colonial organisation who were called the Mao, because they felt infantilized. They felt that they were being patronized, you know, to death. So that's an example of a well-meaning measure that actually backfires. And and there's others where the missionaries arrive, they ban headhunting. Great. They stop and the imperial figures, the imperial leaders stop warfare between these little islands in the Pacific. Uh, but they also ban dancing because it's a bit too lascivious. You know, they ban all sorts of cultural practices, which are actually the bedrock of these cultures. And without them, the cultures collapse. The, the real tragedy of this population collapse that I mentioned earlier in the Pacific, it's not the death rate, which is very high, mainly from imported diseases. It's the birth rate. No one wants to have children. Absolutely goes in two generations. You know, families from having Three children won't have children or one at the most. And so that's the main reason for the population collapse. They don't want to bring children into what is now a meaningless world. Finally, Matthew, there's lots of discussion these days about reparations for Western countries to former colonial nations. There's lots of criticism directed at the British Empire. What do you think is the legacy of empire in a nutshell? That's a really hard question. That's like the question. I, I have to tell you, when, when this book, when I first started this book and I was had, having my first meetings with my editor, he said, the marketing people are asking, Matthew, this empire, are, are you for it or against it? And I sort of put my head in my hands because this sort of balance sheet idea, the minute you look at it carefully, it just falls, to par- falls apart, partly because you can't generalise about the British Empire. It's so diverse. 
on this day, we see places that are basically in the Stone Age, and we see places with civilizations much older, some might say sophisticated, than Britain's own. So any kind of generalization is a nonsense. So would Nigeria have been better off if it hadn't been a colony of Britain? And then you get into that sort of whole counterfactual sort of nightmare. Do we still have, you know, Lord Leverhulme and turning up trying to buy lots of palm oil? Are the French going to take it instead? That way madness lies. So you can't generalise, I'm afraid, about the legacy of the empire or whether we should feel more pride than shame in what our grandparents and great-grandparents were doing on this moment of its maximum territorial extent. So many historians, Matthew, zoom out and generalise. What you've done in this book is you've zoomed in and told us about the specifics, warts and all. It's a fascinating book. Many congratulations and thanks so much for appearing on Planet Normal. A pleasure. So there you have it, Alison. One fine day, Britain's Empire on the Brink. It was published on the 29th of September 2023, 100 years on by Abacus. Breathtaking, says Peter Frankopan. Excellent, says Dominic Sandbrook, and we'll put the Telegraph review of One Fine Day in the show notes to this episode. I've just gone on to Amazon and ordered it for my other half for Christmas, always trying to find books he hasn't read, Liam. It's a fiendish job. It's a rip-roarer. It's a page-turner because Matthew grounds everything he says in specifics. He's read endless newspapers, correspondence, magazines. Yeah. It isn't, as I say, zoom out and generalise history. It's got some amazing stories from Kenya, from Australia, from India, from Ocean Island, a really, really good book. And because the chapters are discrete, they sort of describe specific events. You can read it. It's, there's a lot there, but you can read it in manageable chunks. It is, and he won't like me for saying this, it's a kind of 28 visit to the toilet book. That's a lovely image to leave listeners with. I'm not going to ask how long you spend in there, honestly. And that's going to be on the dust jacket of the second edition. It's a 28 <laughs> visits to the toilet book. Liam Halligan, Telegraph. <laughs> I think the novelist in me is really piqued by the idea of, as Matthew said, that astonishing fact that it was from this huge from Cape Town to Rangoon, all British territory. Imagine, as he, as he said, this tiny island off the westerly coast of Europe, commanding that kind of scope and power. And we were at our zenith as an imperial power, but it was all about to kind of tip, wasn't it? And that's fascinating to me that people... We don't know. I mean, we, you know, you and I on Planet Normal, we chew over the events of the week and we can see sort of into the, a bit into the future. We can see the Tories losing the election and we can see net zero at some point running into the buffers because of the sheer implausibility and unaffordability of it. But we don't know, do we? In 10 years, we could be in a war. We, we just don't know who with. We can't always see things coming. And I think that's what's fascinating about that. If you'd said to anyone in the British Empire at that point, in a hundred years, we will be back to being a tiny island. I mean, full of genius and all sorts of marvellous things, but nevertheless, falling down the world rankings. No, it's great. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to hear from you, the citizens of Planet Normal.
Now, there was a huge response to the story that Rick told us about being unable during lockdown to visit his dying father in hospital. And it provoked a planet normal legend, really, to join in. And listeners may remember Nick Stokes. Nick wrote to us during the pandemic about how his beloved wife, Joy, couldn't find any kind of medical treatment. And Joy tragically died of cancer because no doctor had deigned to see her. And Nick says, Alison Liam, I could not read Rick's story without reflecting sadly on the tragic and entirely avoidable death of my dear wife, Joy, in April 2021. You will recall GPs refusing to do face-to-face appointments with Joy until her cancer was too advanced, and Joy spending a wretched last few weeks alone in hospital, away from her loved ones, all because of COVID. I still have nightmares wondering what must have been going through her mind on her own with nobody to love and care for her. The Telegraph featured Joy's story widely in the weeks leading up to and after her death, but sadly nothing much seems to have been learnt. Certainly Joy's experience is deemed to be irrelevant and of no consequence to the wretched inquiry. I am insulted when the KC dismisses attempts to ask the real questions. Who caused COVID? Why was lockdown the right solution? What were the true economic and health implications? What can we learn to prepare ourselves better next time? Why were the scientists who disagreed with the establishment view dismissed as cranks? As being outside the scope of the inquiry, or not worthy of consideration, change the goddamn scope then. Sorry for the rant, Alison and Liam, but as you can see, time has not lessened my anger and frustration. I'm appalled that the inquiry is allowed to carry on wasting millions of pounds when it refuses to consider what really happened and who the real victims, apart from the families of those who died actually from COVID are, who died or suffered like joy and are still dying and suffering because of COVID and because of lockdown. Keep up the good fight, Nick. Alison, this one's from Phil. I graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering in the 60s and spent over 40 years in the implementation of very large projects involving professional engineers from many disciplines. Can I say what an absolute pleasure it was to listen to Professor Michael Kelly? He reminded me of the many senior professional engineers from many countries it was my good fortune to work with over many years. Analytical minds, the ability to ask basic questions, having to present requirements, designs, plans at every stage to questioning audiences. Just basic skills for good project engineers. Of course, our establishment, says Phil, as they constantly demonstrate, have no understanding of basic science, maths, engineering, and many other things, and have no idea what they're talking about with respect to net zero. As Professor Kelly related, they're unwilling to even discuss the basic issues. I'm not optimistic, as with COVID, questioning voices will be silenced. You indicated you'll keep discussing this issue. How can a fellow traveller like me help? And there's a lot coming in about the COVID inquiry. This is from Gary. Hi, co-pilots. As a solicitor recently working for a major public inquiry, I increasingly despair of the COVID inquiry. Is it destined to be the HS2 of inquiries, years late, over budget and going nowhere slowly? It is vital we learn whether non-pharmaceutical interventions worked, in particular draconian lockdowns. Real-world data emerging suggests that the long-term collateral damage easily outweighs any short-term benefit. A useful exercise would be to assess lockdown as a drug and ask whether applying the NICE, that's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, criteria 
of quality adjusted life years, there's our colleagues again, Liam, it would have been approved given COVID-19 deaths occurred overwhelmingly in the elderly and the side effects in terms of health, societal and economic costs are incalculable and potentially catastrophic. I suggest such approval would have been inconceivable. The inquiry appears uninterested in such issues, treating lockdown as unquestionable rather than a novel, untested solution and those who dissent as heretics. Instead, we have the increasingly ludicrous spectacle of here goes... Keith Hugo, Inquiry Council, trawling through profanities in WhatsApp messages in a blame game of spot the pantomime villain in a manner reminiscent of a schoolboy looking up rude words in a dictionary. This may be beneficial for TV ratings, but in terms of preparing for the next pandemic, it is an exercise in futility. The longer I work in the public inquiry sphere, says Gary, the more I am convinced that it displays the characteristic of the famous Eric Hoffer quote, every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business and eventually degenerates into a racket. Public inquiries have become a perfectly designed mechanism for transferring tens of millions of pounds from the hard-pressed taxpayer into the well-stuffed pockets of lawyers. But, uh, by the way, Liam, Gary very kindly has offered to cooperate with us in background information into the ways that the legal profession has skillfully engineered the inquiry process to fit its business model. That's the reason why an inquiry takes a minimum of five years, much less, and it's not nearly as profitable for the lawyers. So I think I'm going to be liaising with Gary over that And John adds, hi, Alison and Liam, not sure why we would be so exasperated by the inquiry process when Sir Humphrey in Yes Minister called it so many years ago. A basic rule of government, said Sir Humphrey, is never set up an inquiry unless you know in advance what its findings will be. Regarding an alternative meaningful inquiry, says John, have you considered initiating an online petition? Might not achieve anything, but would at least feel like we're being heard. Thanks for all your good work, John. I should say, John, that the discussions are going on amongst some very strong parties about setting up an alternative COVID inquiry, which I'm sure we could get done and adjusted in six weeks for about five pounds. So I'll keep you posted on that. Hat tip to the Daily Mail. There is another newspaper in Britain. Daily Mail had a story that COVID lawyers are trousering between them £750,000 a day oh, from God, this yes. inquiry. And finally, this is from Victoria, a loyal Planet Normal listener. Dear Alison and Liam, inspired by Bob the Bard, of course, our regular Planet Normal poet, I've put into words how I feel after a terrible experience with the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. As a taxpayer-funded government department who should be working for me, I felt the whole thing was a cover-up to not look into my concerns. I'm guessing many others have similar experiences with other departments and agencies. So here's a poem from Victoria called Look the Other Way. Look the other way, someone else will pay. No one needs to say, and nothing spoils the day. Stay away from trouble, do not burst the bubble, move back at the double from the debris and the rubble. Do not rock the boat, just give it a gloss coat. You just sit and gloat, you'll never face a vote. Don't lift the rug, stay hidden in the fug. You are safe and smug, while the public is the mug. Yes, look the other way and hope we go away. But if you deny our say, we'll find another way. That's from Victoria. Bravo. 
And I've got to sneak this one in at the end. This is Robert reflecting, Liam, on the goings-on of COP28 in Dubai. Robert says, the countries we used to think of as nutters are now the sensible ones, and we're the nutters. (laughs) And that's it from Planet Normal. Another bombshell. Another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. Well, it's got to be Victoria for that poetic effort. Victoria, send us an email to planetnormaltelegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading, mug winner. Give us your postal address and we will send you that rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug. Let's face it, we're going to end up as an epic poem, aren't we? It's going to be in the oral (laughs) tradition. It's going to make In Memoriam look like a haiku. If you enjoy Planet Normal, we jolly well hope you do because we do our best. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does really help other people to find us. doesn't half cheer us up as well, reading very kind remarks. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. 